Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Hipsters Podcast, where I interview founders and co-founders, entrepreneurs and artists, executives and stay-at-home hipsters in crypto and blockchain around the world. And I have an amazing podcast for you today. Let's get to it. And today I have an amazing guest. He is the chief executive officer of Pool. His name is Shiv Malik. Um, Shiv, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's really, uh, it's an honor. It's an honor to have you. I, I looked through uh, what we're talking about uh, and, you know, all the great stuff you're up to. And I was like, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So, um, so the first question I have for you is what is your background and is it a logical background for what you're doing now? Ooh, uh, great question. So my, no, it's not a logical background in, in many ways. Uh, I started off life as a kind of investigative journalist. Uh, so for a very long time, I worked for The Guardian. Uh, and actually, it was during that period that kind of really helped formulate my kind of journey now, right? So I was in The Guardian when they were breaking stories like Snowden, and I even helped get out the kind of first versions of Cambridge Analytica, which actually originally pursued by a journalist called Harry Lee at The Guardian. Um, and uh, so all, all of that helped sort of uh, me get to grips with what was going on in tech uh, at the time. So. I then left The Guardian, and if you want, the reason why I left, like if you'd asked me when I was age 15, like what was your favorite job, uh, or like what would you like to do, I would have said being an investigative journalist for The Guardian, right? So I kind of I made it, right? But I had to leave ultimately because the uh, of the financial environment, right? Uh, who was eating, you know, the media's lunch, if you want, and the answer is uh, that it was big tech. So you had this kind of correlation between big tech doing some terrible things with data. Uh, and and people's in, in terms of people's sort of privacy and and what was sort of leaking out there. people clearly not being in control of that and then at the same time them taking all the money as well so that really helped set my journey i started writing a book called the mutual future which is all about kind of cooperativism mutualism uh, and this was in about 2016 then when i left and uh, and then someone said to me i said hey you should look at like what's going on with ethereum uh, and this thing called a smart contract. I was like, oh yeah. He said, yeah, it could, you know, really help distribute money to lots of people uh, in a way that you're kind of talking about, right? In this kind of cooperative way. Um, and so I totally went down the rabbit hole. Uh, come 2017, that first huge kind of flow. I bought my first like Ethereum ETH for like nine dollars. Uh, I think I bought one. <laughs> Watched it go to forty dollars, sold. Um, and uh, I regretted that, obviously, uh, then got into some day trading and then ended up working for um, uh, made a whole load of money, lost a half of it, uh, as you do, uh, and then worked for a project called Gollum and then Streamer. So that's kind of my, my journey until now. So uh, about a year ago, almost exactly, actually a year and a bit ago, was uh, I started Pool um, to specifically then focus on this, these things called data unions. Called what? Oh, data unions. So, oh, that's right. Yep, data unions. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, what's a data union? Uh, I'm guessing right. you're asking, and and along with yeah. your listeners, um, 
So a, a data union is a really, in a way, sort of a pretty simple concept, right? We all have agents working for us sort of in the world in some way or another. Sometimes we need lawyers, sometimes, um, you know, I write books, I have a book agent, uh, people have accountants, right? These people going to go about and do quite complicated things on our behalves, right? But they do them uh, with our knowledge on our behalf, but they're sort of, you know, they're so complicated that we couldn't personally do them ourselves. So we trust them to sort of um, represent us if you want in the world. The same is for data. So a data union is, is that for data, right? You share an, uh, your data with a data union. It aggregates it amongst all of its members into a product that it can sell um because of that scale right your data by just by yourself would probably wouldn't worth anything um and uh, and then they share the proceeds back with you and then they also represent you in the world when it comes to protecting that data getting better standards etc cetera, etc cetera. um so it's a, it's a pretty old concept but to get it off the ground is, and to get these these ecosystems off the ground has been pretty difficult uh, and we've all been waiting for they've all been waiting for blockchain to arrive so they can make those payment distributions in a really scalable way. So with these data unions, what is what does Pool do? You know, what's it all about? And you know, how do you look to um, be a welcome change to the data sharing industry as it exists right now today? Right. So uh, great, you're just lining up these brilliant questions. Uh, <laughs> So what does Pool do? Uh, we are the infrastructure provider for data unions. Um, so it turns out data unions, it's not easy to get one of these things off the ground, right? There's a lot of considerations uh, they have to take into account. Most of it's tech. So they all need sort of um, payment rails, right? Smart contracts, and they also need to accept fiat because all of the buyers are in web two, right? So they're like, well, we're not gonna pay with crypto. So how are you gonna make this work, right? So they all need marketplaces. They all need a place to sort of showcase their data, right? And they all need sort of backend messaging networks uh, and there's sort of a bunch of other stuff as well that really kind of helps get them off the ground. Pool provides all of that for them, right? So we have a marketplace, we have those payment rails built in, we make it easier for data unions to scale, right? Uh, and uh, that second question then is, you know, does anyone want this stuff? And the answer is, Absolutely. Uh, if there's anything I've kind of learned over the last sort of three and a half, four years of kind of doing this and putting these kind of ecosystems together, is that more and more data buyers are going, please, God, give us data that we can buy over the table without anyone going, oh, my God, this is another data scandal. Oh, shoot. You know, we have to now close down our company. Right. Give us stuff that we can be proud of purchasing, that we can do over the table. We don't have to like scurry around in the dark, scraping this from, you know, CD companies, which we know very little about because we're desperate for it and give us data that's better therefore, right? And it turns out that if you're honest with people about collecting this stuff, if you're asking them to consent to sharing, they'll give you better data, right? It's not stuff that you have to scrape from the back end of an application, which is actually giving you the weather forecast, but it's secretly, right, collecting your location data and reading your emails, let's say, right? Uh, and, and of course, that's kind of, you know, has to be obfuscated from Apple and from you. And so it collects terrible data, right? If you're just open and honest about this stuff, it turns out you can create much better data sets, right? So the, and as one, as a couple of data, major data enterprise buyers sort of put it to me, this is the gold standard of data, right? This is exactly what we want. Got it. So, yeah, 
I often, when people, I get a lot of spam phone calls, and when they call me, I often give them the wrong data. You know, on purpose, you know, because I don't want them getting my information, you know. Um, so, um, you are seeking to leverage, you know, the shifts in privacy in order to accomplish this, right? What are these shifts? Um, first of all, when we get into the next question after that. So there are huge shifts at the moment going on in, in privacy. I think, you know, we've all witnessed in the last sort of decade, uh, again, I can remember with that Cambridge Analytica story, right? The bit that I was helping with to get it out was trying to make it a bit sexier, right? So you, what you do is get some quotes from high level people saying, this is very important. Right? And then the desk editors go, oh, yeah, well, if they're saying it's important, then maybe we should take it more seriously, right? So I rang up David Frum, uh, who people might know as kind of George Bush's uh, speechwriter, who came up with the, you know, at the time of the Iraq war, right? But then he became the editor of The Atlantic. And so I rang him up and I said, look, David, you know, here's a story. What do you think? He said, oh, you know, people don't care about privacy, right? Especially Americans, not a thing they care about. You know, I don't think the story is going anywhere. And of course, it became Facebook's biggest scandal, right? So he was evidently wrong about that. Um, <laughs> but he's like any, everyone else at the time, not thinking that this was a big deal. Um, and and so I think that's kind of very uh, uh, emblematic of where we've shifted. People care about, yes, their data privacy. But actually, I think people care about something slightly different from that, right? Because caring about your privacy takes a lot of work. Right? The tools that we have require you to be constantly vigilant. I don't want to be constantly vigilant, right? Like every time someone asks you your data over the phone, you have to like be wary, you're like, who is this person? Are they the right people? Every time you say yes to cookies, oh God, where is this going? You just want to kind of live your life, right? People care about control. So they don't care about privacy because we also share stuff all the time, right? People are human beings, like to share information. They just like to do it on their own terms, right? So privacy allows you to say no, but rarely allows you to say yes. Right? So there's been a huge shift in privacy, but we want that, but I think people want control. And this is, I think, what data unions give you. They give you the ability to say, yes, I'm willing to share this with these people, for example. Right? So I'm sharing it, but here are my preferences. I don't want you to share it with big oil or whatever. Right? But, um, I, I, but And I don't want to share this information. Right? And I want to be in control. Um, so so, so that's, those are the big paradigmatic shifts that are going on at the moment. Um, the other thing to add is obviously the laws, the regulators have sort of, you know, the EU has created uh, a bunch of, uh, or GDPR most of people would have heard of, right? That's stuff that means you have to consent to cookies, right? Really annoying. Well, they moved on, right? So they realized a couple of years ago that G this GDPR law wasn't really doing what they wanted it to do, which is actually tackle the competitiveness or the anti-competitive, the monopoly status of Silicon Valley. Um, so now they're introducing a bunch of new laws, uh, which will tackle that. Um, and I can go into that if you want. Yeah, I'm interested to know what that what what that is. So um, there's like four laws altogether. I won't go into them all, but I just want to point one out, which is the Digital Markets Act and the Data Governance Act. The Data Governance Act basically says. We as the EU love this data union idea and we're going to back this right as best we can. Um, so they're putting in some funding, 2 billion euros. So I say some funding is quite a lot of funding. Um, and they're also basically giving data unions a trust mark, right? Really important. And the second law is the Digital Markets Act. 
right? And this is amazing. This is absolutely game changing. It'll mean that 450 million people in the EU will be able to port their data in real time from any of the major platforms. So you'll be able to sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook to a third company, a data union, we think, right? And share your data with them, right? That You can't do that now, but you will be able to do it in just under two years time. And that's the future that Pool and these data unions are building for. So as a consumer, would I have that choice to, to opt in? Yeah. So what does the world look like in two years then? Right. I think, you know, especially if in Europe, you'll see adverts for data unions and they'll say, look, this data union is focusing on wellness data. So share your Fitbit data. All you have to do is click in, uh, permission this, sign in with Google and that's it. You're done basically to the data union. They'll ping Google, say, yes, we've got this user request, all that stuff goes on in the back end. And that's it, you're a member. You're a member of a Fitbit data union that's collecting wellness data uh, about you and tens and hundreds of thousands of other people, right? Interesting. Wow, I think, well, I think this is where it gets even more interesting, right? So now, now that's just the basic premise. Now, here's this new concept, right? Which you know, people who have be who are avid watchers of Vitalik uh, and, uh, and and uh, and and a guy called Glenn Weil uh, and another co-author called Puja, they wrote a paper in the last couple of weeks since we've been recording. Uh, it's kind of late May, um, and that paper was all about you know, decentralized uh, social right and decentralized society so one of the things that came up with is this idea of soul bound nfts nfts that you can't that you can shift them around but then they're detached from you as a person right so it's like an identity marker so we've come up with this concept and have for a while of a, of a data wallet right it's an old concept right imagine if you could have you know it's your crypto and you control them with your keys right but it's also your data and you also control that with your keys right now, that's that's kind of interesting. Imagine if you had all of your data that you ever produced, right? Bit of a wild idea, but imagine all of that. Like, and you could turn up at any website, and they would beg you, wouldn't they? They beg you, please come here, and you go no, right? Or you go, you know what? Yeah, if the deal is right, if I get a discount, if you're paying me, maybe I trust you, maybe I don't trust you, right? Now you go to a service provider like an insurer, and you're like, oh my god, I've got to spend half an hour filling out forms, or not, right? Because now I can just connect with my data wallet. And they're going to give me the best deal, right? Because I've got my mobility data and my wellness data and the, uh, uh, and my clickstream data or whatever it might be, right? My financial data in there, right? So you can say yes or no, right? Why? Because it's your keys, your data, right? Um, <clears throat> and you've got it in the data wallet. How do you fill that up, right? How do you fill up that data wallet? Who's going to do that work? And the answer is join a data union. And then you say, yeah, please also send this back to me and I'll keep it in my data wallet. So that's the new data wallet that we're working on, right? You join the data unions and then you copy and paste that stream of information back to yourself, right? And suddenly now you're really in control, aren't you? Yeah. So that sounds pretty cool. That would, yeah, I like that idea. Um, now, you're, now you're turned on. <laughs> I am, I am, I am. Um, so 
we talked about the new rules for you know data privacy. Okay, uh, so you're interested in reconstituting power relationships between the the data haves and the data have nots in the in the midst of this 21st century political power struggle or structure. How do you accomplish that? Really, like, how do you get it done? Well, if we've got this right, then it's by doing the things that we're doing now. Um, you know, if you can get data unions off the ground, suddenly that's a huge fight back, right? Against just dozens, hundreds of companies scouring the internet, sucking up and hoovering up your data, making money from it, but you don't see a cent. You don't even, you're not even aware that that process is going on. Um, the second thing will then be something like our data wallet, right? Which we're calling Pocket. Um, and being able to turn up at a website and go, I'm in control, right? You want to know who I am properly, you've got to act well. You've got to give me something in return. I've got to see a benefit here, right? You can't just implant cookies on me, right? On my, on my computer without my knowledge, right? This, I won't stand for this anymore. And, and you can only really say that once, you're, once you've got something to negotiate with, right? Like a data wallet, like all your data in one place, right? Uh, and, and, and so these are these are powerful ways to um, redistribute the balance of power as it's currently uh, concocted. So that's that's what I right, the way the way that I see things is a little differently. Oh, I, I might have this wrong, but I don't think so. You know, I grew up in as a child of the 1980s, right? So we would turn on the news at 10 or 11 o'clock at night and we would trust immediately trust what the newsman said to us right and nowadays we don't trust anything they say to us you know so somewhere along the line the trust left the building you know and i have a lot of friends who were on facebook and you know when they first we first signed up on facebook in 2007 we trusted facebook and now we don't trust them so how do you, how is important how important is it is to solve the the trust deficit you know in this new sharing data economy and why it's i mean it's without trust society rapidly breaks down right um if you've studied the classics and, and kind of classical history you see that throughout um that span of human civilization right um, Roman's a great example because there's loads of evidence for it and, and what happens, right? Senators at the top, people at the bottom, conventions get broken and suddenly no one trusts anymore. And the only way to resolve this stuff is usually end up through horrifically through sort of violence, right? Or great kind of revolutionary change almost. So I, I think we're certainly in one of those eras. Um, where we need that paradigm shift urgently and i think many of the kind of political indicators in even the uk as well as the us right around brexit um uh, trump could be seen as a kind of an aberration from the political norm i think he would describe himself as that um you know, these are people calling out for change um it might not be the change that they want one could argue about that but it certainly is a difference from the status quo um, that's certainly true. And I think that from a tech perspective, um, it, it is remarkable, right? We did, I remember 
thinking and recovering this as a reporter, right, around the Arab Spring. Uh, these guys were heroes, right? Facebook was a hero. Twitter was a hero, right? Allowing, they were fulfilling their mission and allowing people to organize and converse uh, in ways that other well, dictatorial powers didn't want them to. And you're like, great, this is amazing. How amazing, right? And that trust was broken when they realized that they needed to not just monetize their platforms, but um, they understood that human beings can be abused. Uh, and it's pretty easy to do, right? Get them addicted and pump up their algorithms uh, in such a way as to create conversations that are inflaming. Um, and, uh, and then also we've got all this data about them, right? So let's not just continue to manipulate, but let's also um, either solidify our positions economically uh, or uh, monetize that data uh, in some way or another. So I think people now know this game and they feel betrayed. Um, one example for me, the earliest one was Huffington Post, right? Classic kind of web one company, right? Oh yeah, you know, publish for us and it's gonna be great because all this content, we're not paying you, but the content's out there in the world and isn't that amazing because the internet's amazing and isn't it great? And then, oh, we've just sold the company and Ariana Huffington and her investors make $300 million. No one else, all the people who created that value take zero, right? Zero. And this is what the promise of Web3 is, that that can't happen again, right? That's that's the promise. They don't often, we don't often fulfill it, but that's the promise. That you can't just do that. You can't be the people in the middle, spin a yarn uh, and walk away with all the value. Um, people are too cynical, but now we've got tools that help you not to do that, right? And we've seen platforms really take off. Uniswap's a great example. Ethereum's a great example, where if you if you build it right, and you build the right incentives, you can actually bring a whole community with you, and they're on your side, and they're being rewarded. Great. So, being a former reporter, actually, you know what? I'm gonna ask you this first. Though, um, how does this tie in to the mutual future? I know you said you stopped writing that book, but how does that book has that book stood up to today? And how do you help build that? Um, so uh, it's always painful. I, I've written a couple of other books, so this isn't my like novel, right? That I like didn't ever get around to writing. Uh, I want to say that just so I can keep my dignity. Um, the 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 book was about this notion that we can build cooperatives, right? And um, uh, you know, and if you want to talk in sort of slightly grander terms, we've had two models of how to run an economy um, pre-1970, if you want, even in America, right? And Nixon was introducing price controls, right? The state was very much at the forefront of running an economy, a Keynesian model, slightly bastardized, uh, et cetera. And then the second model was, no, open it up for all the markets, right? Uh, and we'll have a pure kind of libertarian view, we'll kind of deregulate as much as possible. And that's a general thesis, right? And um, and everyone will be better off for it. Now, th there is something in the middle between those two things, which is actually, look, you know, or we've forgotten this, which is who owns what, right? 
or as Jaron Lanier says in the title of his book, who owns the future, right? Ownership's really important. And I think a lot of people uh, have been left behind in actually owning. Like, it, it's no one, it, you know, the system that we live in is called capitalism. If you don't own the capital, you're going to lose, right? That's just like, you can get an instinct on that. And the idea that you could just go to work, make enough money and still come good is, is not there anymore. It's not there, you know, I just came back from New York and it's astonishing how many people no longer really believe in that. They know they're being suckered. And, um, but there is another way, right? So you are, you don't want to introduce the state back into stuff, right? To like own assets, right? Even in, in Britain, the state owned vast swathes of infrastructure and all sorts of other things, right? And, and, and companies like telecoms companies and railways and, and housing and all sorts of things. Don't want that because that's, that didn't work, it failed. But is there another way where we can collectively own things, um, uh, uh, whether they're tech platforms or housing, in a way that uh, doesn't mean you've got this one centralized party making the rules uh, and telling everyone what to do ultimately. Um, and yeah, mutualism is a really, it's a 180 year old idea, uh, 170 year old idea, it's really old. Uh, cooperatives have been around since the mid 19th century, uh, started in kind of the UK. Right, and you have loads of cooperatives and mutuals in America. You just probably don't notice them. Um, you know, mutual insurance companies, cooperative farms, cooperative shops. Um, you know, uh, in some areas you can't walk around for like you know bumping into a co-op. Right, those people do well. They why? Because they own the assets, and they're also participating in its success. And what does that sound like? It sounds like Web three. Right, in many ways, right? Sounds like lots of the platform designs that are being created in that. So that's how those two things really come together. They have basic principles, which is the stakeholders of an economy should also be the equity holders. Uh, and that's how you change things. I worked the Prudential Financial starting in the year 2001 for a few years, and I helped, and I built the assets under management reporting department, which helped them to become go from a mutual company to a public company so i i see the you know parallels <laughs> what, you're talking, what you're talking about you know well that's a really good point right so um you know, we had this period of demutualization if you want of banks and and things like that uh in, in the uk and it's awful people sat generations sacrificed to build a communal good right and then some i mean forgive my language but bastard generation comes along and goes ah hey, you know what We'll just bank all these proceeds for ourselves <laughs> and there's nothing left for the next generation to go hey what about us right and you know we've seen that with all sorts of assets is it it's actually it's a crime it's an absolute crime um i'll give you another example weirdly i mean i did write a book on intergenerational justice uh about 12 years ago so um <clears throat> again it kind of it feeds in the mutualism is a solution to, to stuff like this right um, take Norway and take Britain, right? It's 1980, 1979, and they decide to take two very different paths. Norway says, um, or Britain says this, oh yeah, we found all this oil in the North Sea and we're gonna give everyone a tax break, right? Let the economy rip, brilliant. Okay, Norway decides the complete almost opposite. He said, we're gonna um, uh, uh, grow, uh, What's that? I've forgotten Norway, Norway's prime minister at the time, but she was uh, very instrumental in getting this passed. She said, no, you know what? We're going to put all of this, all of this money into an account and we're not going to touch the capital. We can only spend the interest. Right. Fast forward to 40 years later, 
Norway has the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world, right? It's massive, trillion plus, right? And uh, it's called the, the status oil your pensions fund, right? State oil pension fund, right? And it pays all the, every, everyone's pensions in Norway. And if Britain had done, and Britain has nothing. Britain has nothing. So we had some nice tax breaks back in the 1980s for people who are now like pensioners, right? That's it, done. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, not from that perspective, but I've written a book called Regeneration X, how how uh, the laws of the land that were written, the financial laws that favored certain generations over my generation, and how we didn't have a seat at the table and how that impacted everybody. No one's really read it. Uh, so I read it. I read it. I read your book. I didn't realize uh, uh, you were the author of that book. I've, I've got it on my shelf somewhere. I mean, you know, if you're going to write a book on intergenerational justice, then you're going to read the other ones that come out. Right? So uh, awesome, I, I awesome! You're one, you're one of the ten. You're one of the ten. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, yeah. So wonderful. Um, I have one person who read. Awesome, that's great. Uh, so I want to. I want to. Actually, I want to wrap it. I want to thank you very much for. Actually, you know what? I want to. I want to ask you one more, couple more, couple more things. Number one, you said you had Ethereum. Do you still have Ethereum? Oh yeah, sure, of course. Okay. Uh, I'm an Ethereum maxi. Okay, great. I thought so. Um, so when you when you navigate when you navigate these um these abuse in the in the in the media, right? Um, in these platforms, you call it abuse, right? But I, I believe it's abuse. How do you navigate the news? In order to, to 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 you know, as part of your investment thesis. Um, do you mean how do I know what's kind of true or not, and like what is my sources yeah. of information? And then what? How do you know what's true or not, and what what suggestions do you have to people who are new to the space on what to believe at face value or not face value? How do you how do you bring that into your into your thinking? Uh, that's a tough question. I mean, if you're navigating just the space itself, I think like Twitter's pretty invaluable. Um, I think keeping an open mind and following the obviously right people. Um, but you know, to be honest, I think it comes down to who you are, right? If you're the kind of person who's going to be like, oh, yeah, I love this uh, evident narcissist, right, egomaniac, um, uh, who likes to throw, you know. Um, memes back in people's faces and, and shit talk, great. If you like that kind of person, that's the kind of person you're going to follow and that's the kind of information you're going to get, right? If you have to have integrity, as soon as you have integrity, you'll find the other people with integrity who are deep researched, a little quieter, right? They're not about the attack mode. Um, they're often just like publishing steadily, quietly. And then the second thing I would say is go to conferences, right? Actually meet people in real life. There's nothing like putting you off a shit talker than actually meeting them and going, you're full of shit, aren't you? Um, and realizing that the people who actually hold an audience and actually have something interesting to say, um, don't act like that, right? So meet the people and be a better person and you'll find your way. Awesome, thank you. Uh, my final question, I wanna thank you very much for your time today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Um, my final question is this, how can people find out more information about you, about Pool, um, about the work that you do? How can they do any of that? Um, so obviously, go to our website. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, website is pooldata.io. Uh, 
the Twitter is uh, at Pool Data, um, and uh, and we've got uh, you know we're hoping to 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 march towards uh, the launch of our token at some point this year. Uh, so fingers crossed that happens. There's uh, a whitelisting link that people can join up to uh, to also access uh, to to get on that. So um, yeah, follow us uh, on Twitter. Follow me at Shiv Malik. Uh, and and uh, yeah, and get involved and join a data union. There are a few of them out there, uh, so so do that as well. Awesome! Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Jeremy.